The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Greg Martin, a Grammy-winning guitarist. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, we did win a Grammy. Yes. Yeah, back in and, yeah. 90, 1990. Back in, back in 1990, and also a torchbearer of classic American guitar styles and guitar tones. You know, I love... What happened, I mean, I love the 50s and, of course, the 40s and everything, but there was just something great that went down between, you know, the mid-60s up through the early 70s, and that's just kind of what pushes me, I think, you know. And a a real musicologist who's had his own radio show for over 20 years called The Lowdown Hoedown. The Lowdown Hoedown. And, of course, he's probably best known for your work with the Kentucky Headhunters, but oh, so much more. You know, I've been blessed. The Headhunters, what's so crazy, Richard Fred and I started playing together in 1968. Okay. It was through a 4-H talent show at school, a little get-together, a bunch of guys, you know, doing, you know, this is during the hippie movement and everything. So the the 4-H wanted to... Go okay. Let's have a really cool segment where get a bunch of you guys dressed up, you know, in cool fringe jackets like the Buffalo Springfield, and mm-hmm. put some wigs on you, and um, let's let's do Hey Jude, Born to Be Wild, Sunshine of Your Love, and maybe one other song, maybe Purple Haze. And my cousin comes on the bus one day, Larry Sullivan, who is Ken Alonzo and Oscar. Lonzo and Oscar were his uncles. Right. said, hey, Greg, there's this guy just moved. It was a county. I mean, there was three county schools, but he had to come to Edmonton. He said, so there's this guy at school now, Richard Young, that's, uh, his dad is now teaching the school, and he's in the same class, and we're going to be doing a little play together. <laughs> and I had just been smitten by the guitar, and I'll get we'll get in on that a little later, but, uh, you know, really smitten by it. But so I said, you know, said, would you like to play? You know, I was a little older than the rest of them. They were in the eighth grade and I was a freshman, but I had sideburns, so they thought it was cool. As you can see, my sideburns have turned gray now. They're out of Bill Monroe, you know. Yeah. I'm going to be the yeah. next psychedelic <laughs> Bill Monroe, you know. <laughs> but anyway, as I went down one, one day during study hall, I went down, I met Richard Young, uh, rhythm guitarist in the Headhunters. This was like November of 1968. Uh, met him in the cafeteria back in the kitchen. We sat down with our guitars. I had a silver jet, like a 50 silver jet my brother got tired of, and you know, I'll take it because he was playing bluegrass. He got he got into bluegrass music. And we sat down, and we played Hey Jude, Sunshine of Your Love, and a couple of songs, and 
he liked my sideburns, said, you want to do the play with us? <laughs> you know? And so that started the relationship of me with Richard, and then I met Fred. And then we just, like I say, around November 68, we started playing together. This year marks 50 years of our association, you know. Yeah. Now, the Headhunters, if you want to get technical about it, was formed in 1986. But before that, we had different names, you know. Yeah, Itchy, like Itchy Brother. Itchy Brother, yeah. 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 So, yeah, that was one of the, one of the yeah. really, you know, kind of important little, you know, little you know, kind of factoids that I want to hit upon yes. was the fact that you and the young brothers, you know, Richard and, and Fred, you know, mm -hmm. guitar player and drummer, that you all had been playing together, that you started playing in 1968. 68, 50 years this year. And and then, you know, the Headhunters, you know, of course, you know, got together in 86 and then had, you know, major success. But that's, think, think of that, that is a long span of time. That's a long time. And then the fact that you all have been together for 50 plus years now. It's amazing. I mean, it's just mind-boggling when you think about it, Zach. I mean, you know, and it's so funny. About two weeks ago, we played a bicentennial celebration on our town square mm -hmm. in Edmonton. And I was on, uh, while we were playing our set, they, they did it outright. They brought in, you know, a really nice stage and lights and had a huge crowd. But as I was up there playing, I looked over to my right, and there was an old storefront uh, that I used to work at back in late 60s, early 70s, and where when I graduated in 1972, which I did graduate. How's that? <laughs> you know, and uh, they, my, my dad ordered me a 1972 Les Paul Custom for graduation. Wow. You know, and, and uh, the truck didn't even take it out the house. They found out I worked in town at the store, and they left it at the store. And I was up there playing. I'm going, man, that's where I got my guitar. There was another old store next to us where I bought my first stereo. So there's just so many. When you think back to those pivotal moments, you know, things yeah. like that. But, yeah, the Youngs, it is so funny how that even came to be. I grew up, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. And Uncle was very musical. He was a songwriter, a country music um, honky-tonk singer, Wade Martin. He wrote High Step and Daddy that was on our first album. And he played all the bars up and down Market Street and played the jamborees and things like that. And then my dad played a little guitar. He loved Ernest Tubb and the Texas Troubadours. He really loved the Short Brothers, Leon and Jimmy Short. And he just loved the tone of... Jimmy Short's Martin guitar with the, uh, it wasn't a DeArmond pickup, it was an Electromuse pickup. You okay. heard of those? No. There were a pickup out there. Electromuse made a pickup which had a tone control, and he thought okay. that, my dad was a tone, he was a tone freak. He, from day one, he had a set thing in his mind he liked about Jimmy Short's playing. And he loved all of Ernest Tubbs' band members. You know, he loved Leon and Billy Bird and all these guys, cause, but there was just something about Jimmy Short, he loved. But my dad never pursued music. He had a Martin, but he went the work route. Uh, my brother Gary, older brother Gary, got into music and uh, was into rock and roll early on. Then he switched over to bluegrass in 68, so that's how I inherited the, the right. Silver Jet, a magnetone amplifier, and a box of records which had B.B. King, Nightlife, Tired of Waiting on You, uh, some Chuck Berry, I got his Grateful Dead's first album, you know, some cool stuff. 
he, he just decided, I'm done with rock. This is your stuff now. Yeah, because once you get bit by bluegrass, <laughs> you're, you're, you're Well, done. yeah, you're, that you're was done. it for him, man. You know, he was into the bluegrass, and he saw, I know I'm going all over the place, but he saw something, I guess. When we, growing up in Louisville, we were around a real vibrant music scene. We had a really great local band, such as Elysian Field, Soul Incorporated, the Rugby's, the Oxfords, uh, the Exiles, which would turn into Exile later on with J.P. Yeah. Pennington. And we had a great local scene. The radio would support the the bands, and they would be played right along the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Dave Clark Five, and whatever. So these bands were just as uh, influential to us as the Beach Boys and people like that. Yeah, because you were hearing them on the radio. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we had a great, great music scene and great music stores and things like that. So I was born in 53. My dad, in 1966, got fed up with working in Louisville. This is the fall of 66, and I had just seen The Love and Spoonful mm. at Memorial Auditorium in um, November of 1966. November seemed to have some kind of significance. I don't know what it is, but... And that was the first time I ever seen a Les Paul. Saw John Sebastian, Sebastian playing the the, gar, the guitar that Gordon Kennedy has now. Yes, and I finally got to play that thanks yeah. to, to Gordon. I got to touch that guitar and play it. And but that was a, when I saw that guitar, I thought, "What is that? That's just so cool." Yeah. Then I saw Michael Bloomfield on a cover of uh, Super Sessions a little later on, right. and he had one too. Well, anyway, so all the, uh, you know, these seeds are being planted slowly, you know. I'm growing up in Louisville, hearing all this music, hearing country and hearing rock. And all of a sudden, Dad gets fed up, and he moves us all down to Midcalf County, to Edmonton. And so there's nothing to do where we moved to. We lived in this old farmhouse for about seven months out in the middle of nowhere, and, and the landlord used to call it and say, yeah, we, you lived in the giggly weeds, or the giggle weeds, that's what she called it. Because there was nothing there. Yeah. So all I had to do, I had a few records. I didn't, my brother hadn't given me all the record collection, but I had a few Beach Boy and Beatle records and had Hums of the Loving Spoonful and Do You Believe in Magic and Daydream albums. And um, I would listen to WLS at night, WCFL at night out of Chicago and, and didn't have a guitar. See, in Louisville, my brother had a nice guitar and my cousin had a nice guitar who lived with me. So I always had guitars to play. But in this farmhouse was an old Stella guitar that you could shoot bows, uh, like you could shoot arrows off of. Just, mm -hmm. So yeah, I learned the strings are so. Far oh gosh, it yeah. was yeah, yeah, it was just over in the corner. Yeah. And so I tuned I tuned it up to learn how to tune to open E and take a butter knife and play along with you know yeah. a little bit. But my brother saw that I was uh, really getting interested in guitar in '67, and. Uh, he just kept noticing it that you know that, that even with that guitar as bad as it was to play that I could I could figure out songs you know that I could figure out riffs you know like maybe back then it would this is pre Hendrix so you know you'd be figuring out uh, Daydream by the Love and Spoonful and things like that right 1968 it just my cousin took me to see a band my brother was getting married he stayed in Louisville. We were living in the country, as we say, Edmonton. Yes. And my dad couldn't get a job, so he was driving back and forth because he was a union member, and they wouldn't hire him at the yeah at the plant down there. So he would drive back and forth, but stay with his parents in Louisville, and then come my grandparents, and drive back and forth. So we went to my brother's wedding, and 
October of uh, 1968 in Louisville, and my cousin said, Greg, I'll take you here a band that's really good. They're a, they're a trio called the Legion Field. And they were like the band that were the cutting-edge band in Louisville at the time. They had signed with Imperial Records, and the guitar player, Frank Bugby, was just phenomenal to me. So he took me to see him, and man, soon they just, during the set, I just had an overwhelming feeling that this is what I was going to do the rest of my life. It was almost, a, it was a, I, I think it was a God thing. It was absolutely a God thing. And um, so from that moment on, I was just ate up with it. Even before then, I was gravitating towards the guitar and music records, you know, and things like that. But after seeing Elysian Field, it just it just solidified what was supposed to happen. Yeah. Then I heard Sunshine of Your Love on the radio. Then I heard uh, one one night out of Chicago, and I'm going, man, that guitar sounds like a voice. Yeah. And I had heard Hendrix before, and I love Hendrix. I love him a lot. There was something about Clapton's tone and his phrasing that sounded very vocal. And I thought, mm -hmm. that's the coolest thing. So that was a, a pivotal moment, too. But Frank Bugby, seeing Frank Bugby with Elysian Field, and a lot of folks will never know who. If you go out and find the Elysian Field records, you will never even, you go, they don't, didn't sound, because the record company made them do radio friendly stuff. Right. And actually, Greg Allman one of their songs later on in the hourglass but but still they never you had to see Elysian Field live to even understand it was a three piece band doing the cream thing yeah not like cream but but it was enough impression on a young guy like me so you know I go I go up there that one weekend my life just completely changes you know and I go back to the country back to Edmonton and about two weeks later, I meet Richard and Fred. So everything just started kind of moving in that direction there. We started playing together. And yeah. It's been 50 years, man. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. So you you graduated from high school. Yes. And and you... Yeah, I, I, yeah my dad was very proud. <laughs> he got me a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> you got the 72 Les Paul. Yeah, 72 yeah. Les Paul. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. black, black with the gold, gold hardware in the whole nine yards. Yeah, it had Gibson. I, I, best I remember, and this is going back. I, I believe it had the little the Gibson logos on the pickups. Oh yeah, Seventy two, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, it was heavy. I'm sure it was heavy. Yeah, guitar's long gone. I wish I still had it, but that's that's another story. But yeah. I traded it off for something. I'm sure. Yeah, we're all, should have every, done everyone, it. Everyone's trading up. Oh, yeah, yeah. My brother so, taught me that. Yeah, trade so, up. So when did when did you start? You know really making a go at, at playing for a living? Well, as soon as I saw Elysian Field, and I had been starting to play around with guitar a little bit, you know, before that, but didn't really have a good guitar. My brother went, he, that's when he said, you've got to have this, take this Gretsch and, and play it. So I, I think that started my journey on to wanting to do what I'm doing now. Um, uh, but in all through high school, I played with Richard and Fred. We had our band. Uh, we our, I think the first time the first name was we were called the Truce, <laughs> and then we changed it to Aftermath, and then that eventually became Itchy Brother. But when I got out of high school in '72, Dad decided my mother had enough of him traveling back and forth, and she was ready to move back to Louisville. 
And so dad said, okay. He moved everybody back to Louisville. And uh, and at that point, I just, I didn't really, I know now I should have pursued it more, but I guess I I pretty much went into work, working at a printing company and I eventually started working at a record store, uh, managed an electronic store, sold stereos, Kenwood, Pioneer, and records, things like that. And I'd play on the side, but I, yeah. I can't say that I was really pursuing From 1972 to 1976, I wasn't really pursuing what I was supposed to be doing. Right. You know, I just wasn't doing it. And in 77, uh, the store closed. I had this really nice job at running an electronic store. They they closed the little satellite store I ran. They, they uh, actually uh, put me to work at the P.I. Burks, long gone. Anybody around Louisville remember P.I. Burks? Uh, and I, I went to work at the main store downtown. I just didn't like it. And I had started working with a group called Raintree at that point from Louisville. And they called up one day and said, hey, we got a shot of going to Florida playing for two weeks. And uh, Exile was playing on one side and uh, another group from Louisville called Bobo was playing. And we would be playing at one one stage. So I just quit my job and that was it. Right? This, in 1977, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Let's just go for it, you yeah. know. Yeah. And then later on, later on that year, uh, Richard called because somebody had quit an itchy brother, and, and I moved back down here to play with them. Yeah. So then itchy brother somehow gets uh, gets noticed by uh, Mitchell, who's working Mitchell. who's working with Swan Song. Mitchell Fox, you know yeah, Mitchell, Mitchell Fox? Fox. I I know of him. <laughs> so. So Mitchell Fox starts getting you, you know, kind of in with Swan Song, and then what happens? Wow. Well, the Mitchell, well, here's a, while I'm with Rain Tree, Itchy Brother somehow ends up moving, this is without me, Richard Fred and their cousin Anthony and Tim Speck, they get noticed by a company out of Atlanta, StarQuest Productions, whoever that I'm not really sure who that is, but there was a gentleman by the name of Tom Long, who you might know, that worked okay. for BMI, ASCAP, and um, Sony. He uh, come and saw the band, and he took the guys down to Atlanta. Took them to Atlanta. And at that point, they were... The Itchy Brother name came to being around 1974, when we cut our first little... We cut a little 45. We got back together and cut... And, a, and what did the name come from? Cartoon character. Okay. King Leonardo and Friends. If any cartoon buffs out there, King Leonardo Friends uh, all lived in Gonga, uh, see, Bongo Congo, which was like uh, this kingdom. And King Leonardo was the king. He was the good king. Mm -hmm. And his <laughs> his uh, evil brother was Itchy Brother. Him, okay. and, him and Biggie Rat were always trying to overthrow the king. Okay. <laughs> so that's where the name came from. So we cut this 45 at this little studio in Burksville, Kentucky. It was, uh, the single was uh, Rock and Roller on one side, and uh, the other side was Shotgun Effie, which was one of the first songs I ever wrote and sang on a record. And sang rather badly, but, but it was a start, you know. And... Uh, we released it, you know, just on, on our own and, you know, gave them away. Uh, 
nothing really became of it. And I just continued to work at the electronics store. And, the, and those guys went on to do what they were going to do. Yeah. And then they moved to Atlanta in 77. And they came home for a break. And I've already quit in P.I. Burks by then. You know, I'm, I'm like going, I don't know what I'm doing, but I don't have any money. I'm living, you know, but, you know, I'd, I'd go play an occasional gig with somebody, make some money and whatever. Uh, they came home on a break, and I guess the bass, the bass player just quit. He wasn't going back to Atlanta. He didn't want no part of it. So Richard called me in the fall of 77, said, Greg, Tim Specs quit, and and he has agreed to go back to bass if you'll come, if you'll move back down here and play guitar. And that's what I did. And, yeah. and that that is absolutely the best rock and roll band I've ever been in. Yeah. That four-piece band right there. I mean, we just hit it, you know. Somehow, I went and bought me a Marshall, you know, and, and uh, I grew so fast after we all got back together, you know. All the guys did, you know, the writing. And, and I knew that's what I was supposed to do, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, to answer your question, Itchy Brother, um, we went for like a couple of years we were trapped on, I, I lived with Richard and Fred. Their parents put me up. I, they were so good to me, you know, great, great people. And we were all trapped on the farm for about two or three weeks back in the winter of, I'm thinking it was like the winter, early 78. Of course, we were all ate up with Led Zeppelin. And we were looking at it one afternoon. <laughs> we, were, we were looking at a, a record. And Richard says, let's call Swan Song. Okay, sure, why not? He can do that. I couldn't do it, but he, Richard could do it. And um, he called Swan Song. He got the number and called up there. It was after hours, but lo and behold, Mitchell Fox was in the building getting ready to get on the elevator. And he, for some weird reason, he just picked up the phone, and here's this voice coming out of Kentucky. Yeah. Starts telling him about our band, Itchy Brother, and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that voice and the story. Yeah. And yeah. He, before long, he had agreed to come to Kentucky to watch us play. And he flew down to Louisville in the spring of 1978 when we were playing at a club called Soundstage, and he just fell in love with the band. And then he started trying to help us. But unfortunately, by early 79, you know, lack of funds and this and that, we just couldn't keep it together, you know. And, yeah. So we kind of took a break from it, and then we came back in 80, like 1980, early 80, and tried to do it again. But unfortunately, Mitchell, uh, it was not, not a fault of his, but the disco thing was just so heavy by then. And But Mitchell worked for, he worked for Swan Song, and he actually flew to England, went to Peter Grant's house, and they were all interested, but Peter Grant at the time was really messed up. And and he stayed at the house, and he said for like two days he could hear Peter Grant walking up. You know, he, he had some substance abuse. Yeah. It's, it's well documented. And he said he never would come down and see him. He was just so messed up. You know? Yeah.
So Mitchell Fox had had take, had tried to get you signed with Swan mm-hmm. Song, and it just things things didn't happen. It was um, trying times for rock and roll bands. Yeah, I mean, even though Van Halen hit what seventy eight, I believe, yeah, seventy eight. When I heard Van Halen come on the radio on on KDF, which was out of Nashville, I went, "Whoa, the games have been changed." Yeah. You know, the, the level of playing, you know, went it went somewhere else. So it made it that made it cool, but but there again, you still had the disco thing yeah. happening. So Mitchell did work it out where he took us to. We we went in the studio. We cut some demos here in Nashville, uh, in a couple of studios. We did some recording up in Kentucky, and he got actually Eddie Kramer mixed some of our demos. Yeah, and at one point we needed we decided to take Richard off, which I think it was a mistake. Now take him off vocals because I think we had a really good four piece band, but. Hats off to Richard for trying it. Uh, he decided, okay, journey's out. You need a singer can sing way up there in the stratosphere. Right. So Eddie Kramer suggested we bring in Frankie Gadler from New York, uh, who was one of the founding members of NRBQ. Right. Yeah, because I was, I was thinking, it wasn't he one of the NRBQ yeah. guys like in, Great the, in the early in the early days, kind of uh, like almost before you know. The, I guess he was there in some of the Al Anderson days, but he was like in the Steve Ferguson, yeah, Ferguson. Yeah, when you hit on, a, yeah, what a oh great gosh, that's another cat. We'll, we, we'll talk. We yeah. got to talk about Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody needs to know about Steve Ferguson. Uh, anyway, yeah, you're right. Um, Frankie Gadler was in on the first. Three or four NRBQ albums. Uh, yeah. Ferguson was on the first two, and then on the third album, Ferguson went back to Louisville, and then Al came in. I think it was a brief time where both of them played together too. Yeah. Which I, kinda, yeah. <laughs> I think I've, I, that, that had to be phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Frankie, Frankie came down as soon as they told told us. You know, Eddie Kramer suggested bringing. Frankie and we were like, yeah, because we loved NRBQ. Yeah. Just, you know, we worshipped NRBQ and said, let's give it a try. So Frankie moved down from New Jersey or Bronx, where he was living at the time. Bronx, I think. Bronx of New York. And he moves to Glasgow and we start rehearsing, you know, and we change our style around a little bit, trying to make it a little more radio friendly. Yeah. And uh, we go to New York and do three showcases, one at Lone Star, the old Lone Star, yeah. one at a place called Trax in Manhattan. And when we did the one at Trax, because Eddie Kramer was there, but Gene Cornish from the Rascals was there, but Steven Tyler was there, and he was just really not having a good, this is a bad time for him. He yeah. came up and said, y'all really need me to sing for your band. And, and, and Mitchell said, you're all washed up. <laughs> Famous last words from Mitchell Fox. Yeah. We love You're Mitchell. all washed yeah. up, Steven well, Tyler. Yeah. Well, at that point, he was, you know, kind of. I mean, God yeah. bless him. He'd come back. He'd come back in a big way. Yeah. But uh, we did a showcase there, and then we did another showcase at the Mad Hatter out on Long Island, Great Necks of Long Island, down that area. And Atlantic and different labels just ended up passing on us. Just yeah. in the past, on it was just uh, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't what was supposed to happen. I guess yeah. you know when you look back, 
it was just those little stepping stones, but they, it wasn't supposed to happen. And by 81, I was like, guys, I'm, you know, I got married in 79. I said, I've got, got a family. You know, I married a lady with two kids, and I love still with them. You know, we've been married almost 40 years, you know. And and my stepkids are great musicians. They 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 both had record deals, but they're doing regular jobs now. But they done yeah. they done been through the whole thing. That's another story. Yeah. But you know, I just said I've got to work. I've got to go to work. And I took a gig with Ronnie McDowell in, yeah. in the fall of of eighty um, one. So how did you get that gig? It's another one of those things where I just once the labels were all passing on Itchy Brother, and I just felt like it's just not going to happen. And, yeah. and I don't think I made a bad choice. Here's why. Uh, I had played with a horn band after Itchy Brother for a brief period. We traveled, you know, through the South, played in Kentucky. We played in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Really good band. And uh, learned a lot about music through those guys. Uh, the, the sax player... After that band dissolved, he actually started playing horn for Ronnie McDowell. Somehow he got wind that I was looking for a gig, and he called me like in the fall of 81, said, would you be interested in trying out for Ronnie McDowell's band? Yeah. I said, yeah, sure. I did. I went down, tried out. Next day I was doing Hee Hall, and we were playing the Grand Ole Opry House with Merle Haggard, and it was just like going from, you know, wanting to be a rock and roller you know, to, to the, the countryside life, so yeah. to speak. Well, also, Ronnie had really kind of made a name for for being, for singing like Elvis. He was. Initially, he, he, he came into the business singing like Elvis Presley. Yeah. When CBS got a hold of him in the late 70s, they started trying to change it. Buddy Killen produced him and started finding, Ronnie wrote some of his own songs and then... Yeah. He started trying to stretch out, right? You know, and then he started having hits. When I joined, he was having number one, top ten hits. He was doing really good. Yeah. But this is another one of those God things. So what happens when I joined Ronnie McDowell? Uh, about the same same day, Doug Phelps is trying out for Ronnie McDowell, bass player in the Headhunters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's one of these things. If I hadn't done that, I would have never met yeah. Doug. You know, right. is it every everybody in the band? We're doing different things. You know, Fred went off to play with Sylvia for a little bit, yeah. country music artist yeah. Sylvia. Uh, Richard wrote, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Richard wrote for Acuff Rose. And, uh, you know, we all did different things. But so Doug joins Ronnie McDowell. You know, we were out doing our thing. We're out touring with Conway Twitty and Ronnie Millsap and, you know, learning, going in the studio, working demos and doing TV. Uh, this is back when Nashville TV shows were very, yeah. There's a lot of them, you know. Yeah. There was Pop Goes the Country, uh, uh, Nashville Now, and all that stuff was going on. And um, so we're just doing our thing. Richard's writing Fake Up Rose, and we've pretty much given up on our rock and roll dreams, you know, at that point. And, but by 86, I kind of got a thing. I said, man, it'd be fun to get together with, with Richard and Fred and play some blues or some rockabilly, whatever. And, we talked to our cousin Anthony about doing it, and he had just gotten married, and he wasn't really interested. He was pretty much done with that. He said, no, <laughs> I've had enough of the music. Yeah. But we drug him back in a little later on. That's another yeah. story. But 
So uh, I suggested Doug, who was playing Ronnie. Of course, they were a little reluctant because they didn't know Doug. They didn't know Doug. And they come to a couple. Richard came to a couple of Ronnie McDowell gigs, and checked him out. Knew he could play. And Doug was a handsome fellow, and they thought, well, yeah, let's get together and jam. So we got together in my basement, jammed a couple times, in in March of '86, April, something like that. And that that was the start of the Headhunters. Yeah, that's where that took off. And then about a few months later, Ricky came into the band. And then by 1989, we had a record deal. And then record came out in October of '89. And the rest is kind of history, I guess. Now is, it, now, is it true that the first album was the demos that y'all had cut? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the we came in off the road in '88. I believe it was '88. From Ronnie McDowell? Or yeah, from, I can't, yeah. yeah, me and Doug came in off the road when we booked the studio, uh, the old sound shop studio, Yeah, Mike Bradley. And we we had done a 45 before that. That's, there, was a, there was a 45 lurking out there that we recorded at Acuff Rose. That's very rare. Of Walk Softly and Old Lonesome Me, but they don't really sound like the band. The band hadn't matured enough at that point. It's almost like psychic. Really, one the, the solo on "Walk Softly" almost sounded like Arn Butterfly. <laughs> it's pretty sick, pretty sick, man. You know, it it finally matured into more of a kind of a hats off to, to Clapton's woman tone later on. But, mm-hmm. but so we came in off the studio. <clears throat> a, a gentleman, when I was around at McDowell, we were playing at a club called Duke's one night, and we. When Ronnie walked off, you know, you know, he'd walk off and we'd play a little instrumental. And we we decided to play Hideaway one night. Yeah. As Ronnie walked off, and this guy walked up to us, kind of looked like Dennis the Menace's dad. This fellow's named Jonathan D.W. Lyle, and he said, talked to me and Doug said, "You guys like blues?" I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we love blues. We got a little band back in Kentucky. We played him a tape, and lo and behold, he just he come down and checked us out. So here's five grand. Go go cut some music." So we went into the sound shop, and we cut eight of the songs that would become Picking on Nashville. And yeah. we released them on a little cassette tape with a pink cover. Had Merle Travis's guitar on the cover. They, uh, it's, it's the famous pink tape, if you can yeah. find one of those. And uh, when it, we signed with Polygram, Mercury Polygram, and got our advance, we paid Jonathan back. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't even caring if he ever got paid. He just liked us. It was just weird how these little things kind of work out, you know? So then you so you had your demos, which they, they listened to, and they're just like, oh, that cuts the mustard. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. We had we were going around. I'm, we're, me and Doug are still with Ronnie. And at one point, even Richard was out selling T-shirts for Ronnie. Mm-hmm. And Ricky Phelps even came out saying, and played rhythm guitar for Ronnie. So at one point, a lot of the, the headhunters were out there. Yeah. You know, we call it Ronnie McDowell University, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, we're, we're selling the little cassette at gigs, and we're also passing around Nashville. People like Larry Shell and Tom Long were very instrumental early on in getting it in the right hands. Uh, of, a fellow by the name of Larry Hamby. I may have this name wrong. He worked at Sony Music. This would have been 88, end of 88. He hears it and he just flips out. He flips out. And we decided we need to do a showcase. 
So we did a showcase at Douglas Corner. And I don't know the exact date, but I'm thinking it's fall of 88. Also doing a showcase at Night Leroy Parnell. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said when he heard us, he said, oh, heavy metal bluegrass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, when Larry Hamby, if I, and I'm sorry if I got the name wrong, the gentleman from Sony. Yeah. When he heard us live, he said, well, I don't know what we're going to do with you guys because you don't really sound like this cassette. You sound more like a rock band. Yeah. And he kind of passed on us, which broke our hearts. But lo and behold, Harold Chad is in the crowd, and he's like, he saw something in us, and he took a cassette, and he started calling us, and then we signed with him. Yeah. And Mercury. Yeah. So, again, to kind of, you know, Give us the proper perspective. Yeah. You know, during this time period, you know, most of the albums coming out of Nashville are the guitars are direct. Mm-hmm. They're straps. They have chorus on them. Yep. You know, you, you know, it's, it, there's not, there's not a lot of overdrive happening. Every once in a while, you'll hear some more, some more, you know, a little distorted guitar, mm-hmm. but n- nothing with the heavy beat, the heavy drums and the heavy bass. Mm-hmm. And the distort, heavily distorted guitar that you know the cranked, you know, Marshall. less less Paul Marshall tone. I mean, that was a, a huge deal. No, if any of that was going on, it would have been barefoot. I'm not even sure if they, some of the barefoot Jerry guys may have been using a Marshall and maybe Ch- Charlie Daniels. But that when Charlie yeah. came out, he wasn't really considered country early on. You know, no. you know, you know. South's going to do it again, and, and uh, right, Georgia, right. which has some. Yeah, but still not to the No, not, not to the heavily. That, you, you're right. You you're right. I, I yeah. guess that's true. There were guys in town like Tommy Hatcher that had loads of marshals. Right. You know, because we did a gig with Tommy's band. I think it was Hoppy and the Weevils, I think was the name of that band. And I remember seeing all those marshals. I'm going, yeah, man, that's, that's where it's at. Because yeah. I grew up looking at cream covers. and Yeah, you saw those stacks. Yeah, stacks is what we wanted, yeah. man. But you're right. When I when I started with Ronnie, when I started with, even with Ronnie, like the most over, overdriven thing you'd really hear would be Eddie Rabbit's, uh, who ever played on his records. It'd be more pop overdriven stuff. Right. Well orchestrated harmony yeah. solos. There really wasn't that going on. Yeah, uh, yeah I think yeah, I don't like know I'm, what I love a rainy night that yeah, has that kind of almost yeah. Tony sounding guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. Right, right. And, and you hear the stuff that sounded like Andrew Gold, where there was kind of like the the harmonized guitar stuff that was distorted. So absolutely, yeah. it was more pop oriented, and, yeah. and it, which was really very very nice. But I think maybe they were emulating. Maybe I hope I hope I'm not saying anything bad. But I think they may have been emulating L.A. a little bit. Maybe yeah. they were listening to Carlton and Rittenauer and people like that. And but there were really nice pop records. I mean, really, Rabbit and England Dan and. John Ford Coley w- recorded in Nashville. I think Steve Gibson played yeah, guitar Steve and that Gibson. stuff. Yeah. It's really great stuff. And nobody was playing, you know, on country records, the full blown out Marshall thing. Yeah. The first thing we did at Gay Cuff Rose, I was using a Mesa Boogie. And I wasn't really getting what I wanted yeah. tone-wise. Nothing against Mesa Boogies. They are what they are. They're great. Yeah. They're really on a clean sound. They're, they're wonderful. You just crank them up and they're great. They're great sound. Um, and sometime in 88, I went to Guitar Emporium in Louisville. Are you familiar with the store? Yeah. Jimmy Brown was the owner. Every week, 
I'd go up there once a week and there'd be a pile of stuff in that store that people traded in or he'd be getting things in. And it was all, always Marshall stuff there. And uh, there was a Marshall head sitting on the floor, a 1969 Marshall head, 100 watt. And I said, hey, can I try this? Of course, then you can say, oh, yeah, Greg, just take it. Try it out. Yeah. You like it? You know, we'll, we'll trade. And if would be Marshall basket weed bottles. I'd be grabbing those, buying them from him for hardly nothing, you know. But once I plugged into that Marshall, I went, oh, yeah, this is this is cool. But when we went down to do picking on Nashville, my I was going to use the Mesa again at Sound Shop. Mm-hmm. For some reason, we, we started out cutting skip a rope. I think I started out with that, but then I plugged into the Marshall, and I went, oh, no, this is it. Yeah. This is it. Then I went all full-blown out Marshall. And that head, that 69 head, it belonged to Elysian Field. Hmm. I found out it belonged to Elysian Field, the band that yeah. kind of got me into it. You know, big influence. Mark Maselli, actually, he was yeah. the guy that took Frank Bugby's place. And actually, I, I let him profile it his old head here a while back on a Kemper. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Comes, comes around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still, so he's got his old head back, yeah. you know, in a way. And I still got that old head. I love right. it. But, yeah, you're right. And, and um, yeah, the, the picking on Nashville was really, it was two Marshall heads. It was an old uh, Plexi 68, 50 watt, and a metal front early, it'd be a mid-69, I guess, because it's got a metal front. And that was the two heads I used on that. Yeah. And and the only thing the Mesa made, there's a little scream part on Skip a Rope where uh, it talks about uh, woke up with a terrible scream. You hear the guitar go, yeah. That, that was the Mesa. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else. Marshall. So, did, so from the... From the producer of the labels or anything, they 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 were okay with this. They you know they were because it was you know pretty groundbreaking to have again that heavy bass, heavy drums, and yeah, and we produced right, and we yeah. produced it ourselves. You know, we didn't know. What, I mean, honestly, we were just yeah. going by gut and instinct, and yeah. I think that's what producing is all about in some ways. You know, uh, Harold Shedd. Hats off to Harold Shedd. Of course, Larry Shell and Tom Long and Mitchell Fox. They saw something in us and. Got it, to, and then when Harold Shedd decided he wanted to take a chance on it, <laughs> you know, he said, "Well, we may all be frying hamburgers next week. Let's give it a shot." Yeah. And uh, there wasn't that kind of thing going on out there. I mean, we had Steve Earle pushing the boundaries. Right. I mean, Copperhead Road. Yeah. It was. It was. I can't say that was a huge influence on us, but we appreciated it. Yeah, we love. I mean, we really appreciate Steve. I loved uh, Guitar Town and uh, Copperhead Road, Exit O, the great albums. And there was another back to basics thing with Dwight Yoakam and his band, yeah. Pete Anderson. Even though it's not that kind of music, it was just like, hey, let's just play. Yeah, let's don't slick it up. Let's just yeah. play. Amps. No and, chorus units. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No chorus. <laughs> And course, units are fine. Yeah, you know they're they're good. You know, nothing wrong with that. I've, yeah. had them, I've tried everything you know, over the over the years. You know, but uh, um, Harold Shedd, he didn't try to change anything. But there was one when they released "Walk Softly" on this heart of mine as a video. Some of the stations were screaming, you know, about about it. 
And Harold went in the studio. He said, well, I'm going to go in there and try to remix this and find and bring the acoustic guitar up. Yeah. There's no acoustic guitar yeah. there. And he kept asking Mike, where's the acoustic guitar? I said, well, they don't have one. Right. So he just kind of cut it down a little bit. But it honestly, when it, it, it just took off on its own. It had a life on its own. And when yeah. Dennis Walker came out, radio couldn't stop it at that point. People yeah. liked it. And that's what you want. You want... You want to connect with the general public, you know? Yeah. Because there's a lot of, back in those days, there was a lot of number one records that were number one, but they didn't sell records. You know? Right. You, what predicated that is like every station would be on a, on a song, but they could be not selling records. So by the grace of God, we sold a lot of records, you know? We're very lucky early on to do that. How about laying on us a little bit of like the intro to uh, uh, Walk Softly on well, this Heart of Mine? Now, I'll be doing it, but that was Richard Young okay. doing, the, doing, the, um, doing the solo, I mean, doing the intro. Yeah. You know, like, with a Telecaster. Yeah. That he actually got from Terry and Steve Warner. Okay. So that's right. I think I'm out of tune a little bit, but sounds sounds like a natural chorus unit, guys. Just detuned, and you got it, you know. But yeah, of course, what what it was on the solo, on the yeah. solo. Now, everybody thinks it was on Les Paul. It was the Marshall. Yeah. But it was like a '59 refinished Strat body with EMG pickups. Really. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, you know the, the solo of you know like that. Then yeah. uh, getting the Chuck Berry thing. Yeah, I'll try not to. You know, but it was it was it was really a strat. That's what yeah. it was. Yeah. Richard did the intro with a like a early '60s Telecaster. That he had gotten from, which was a lucky accident, he got from Terry and Steve Warner. Yeah. You know? And uh, then I picked up this, I walked into a music store in Bowling Green, Kentucky uh, one day, and there was a, on the floor was a brown case, and I opened it up, and there was a stripped down uh, slab board strap. Yeah. And I bought it for like 200 bucks and had it, had uh, Lay's guitars up in Akron, Ohio, refinish it, and I thought, oh, Steve Luker, he's got the cool sound these days. So I put some some essays in there, EMG yeah. essays in it. Yeah. 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 So did you just roll the tone down on yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it sounds. Yeah, to give it, because it sounds like, it sounds more like a Les Paul than. Right, yeah, or, right. Yeah, yeah. To get, yeah, yeah. What you do, as everybody knows, it, that goes yeah. for that sound, you just, the woman tone, you just roll this back and go. How did you deal with success? Well, I I didn't really trust it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, it was like 
riding on a wild horse and being out of control for that first year or two. But I remember when we won our second CMA award. And uh, I remember sitting at Opryland by myself. I'm going, this is not going to be happening forever. I, I know some bands go on and they just keep, you know, like the Stones. Yeah. You know, they've made some kind of deal somewhere. They just, yeah, they, well, they're great. Come on, yeah, those Stones. They keep going. They keep yeah. going. They write great songs. And uh, it was it was a scary thing, you know. And I, I do I do believe my faith in the Lord got me through a lot of it because I, I definitely went off the path a few times, you know, went in the ditch a couple times, and but I'd get back on. Um, I just held on for dear life, man, you know, with the rest of the guys. And, of course, the band, the, the, the band that did pick it on Nashville— Broke up in '92, as you know. Yeah, you know, and it, which was a very hard time. Um, and at the end of '91, we were all worn out. We had been, we had rushed in, done a second album, Electric Barnyard, which did did well. It probably sold right at a million copies, but it wasn't picking on Nashville. Yeah, we were tired, and we we took a break after. I think it was like October of. 1991, we took a break, and we decided we just we just need to get away from it for a minute, and then we would try to do another album or tour next year, you know. And uh, Ricky went out west, and they were we were getting kind of full, you know pushed to go into another tour and do another album real fast, and and I think Ricky just couldn't handle it, you know, mm. Ricky Lee Phelps, and yeah, and then June of. Ninety two, that was it. It went boom. It was gone. I went okay. <laughs> yeah, that was the end of it, and it was heartbreaking. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm gonna go lie to you. It bro, it was it was heartbreaking for all of us. You know. Yeah. But looking back on it, there was a lot of good lessons learned. By 1994, um, I decided. I went to church one Sunday with my aunt. I rededicated my life. And I got a better perspective on things and said, you know what? There's a lot more to life than just success. You know, you do. Success is uh, if, if you love playing guitar, if you love working on cars or whatever you do, you just do that. You'll do that whether you're making money or not. And by the grace of God, we are still doing it. Uh, there, in, in the beginning, like say Doug and Ricky went off to do Brother Phelps, yeah. if you remember. I do. And they only went for like three years and I think Ricky just I think Ricky was just fed up with the, the business of it. And he pulled the plug on that. I think, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. And then Doug came back with us. Yeah. But Rick, Ricky, I love Ricky. We're yeah. we're we're very close friends. I mean, I was aggravated in the beginning, you yeah. know. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was thrown off when I heard, you know, Brother Phelps come out. You know, it's like you heard their uh, their big first singles like Let Go. Let Go, yeah, and, with Albert and, Lee, I think. Yeah, with, it had Albert Lee playing string bender stuff all over it. Sure. And it was such a, I mean, it was a great tune, but it was great such song. a such a departure from, you know, from the sound that they had helped establish, you know, that y'all had established Yeah, together. yeah, it was. Yeah. And I think that may have been inten intentional on their part. Um, yeah. It really... What happened at the early Headhunters, the sound was 
a big part of the sound was me and Richard and Fred coming up from the rock and roll side, yeah. rock and blues, where Ricky was more into bluegrass and folk music and country. He, he was into rock, too. When we put that all together, it made a really interesting yeah. psychedelic country thing. I don't yeah. know what it is, what it, yeah. it, but, it, but people connected with it. When they went off to do their own thing, they did intentionally, I believe, go to a more uh, country deal. Yeah. 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 I, Let Go was, is a great song. Dickie Brown, I think, wrote that. Great song. But it was different. But anyway, you had to deal with the success. It, you know, really, probably not really well, <laughs> you know, early on. I wish I'd done some things different, you know, some things different. Because, I mean, gosh, man, when it hit in 89 and 90, it was just like out of control there for a minute, yeah. you know. What would you have done? You you can't go back, but what would you have done different if you could? Oh, if I could have done different? Yeah. Well, I would have. If I could have done anything different, I would have stayed in church. Uh, I, I would have been in my Bible more. I would have been a lot more grounded, and I could have got through that that stuff and had a better perspective on it. Yeah. Uh, I would have saved a lot more money. <laughs> I did buy some nice guitars, though, and I still yeah. got some of them, you know. But yeah. but uh, I, I'm proud of my family still together. And um, But I think the things I would have done would have been more on the spiritual side. You know, I probably could have kept a calmer head during the craziness of 89 to 92. You know, yeah. that's what I would have done different. I would have stayed in the Bible more. I'm guessing when you have that level of success, it's hard for that not to be just all consuming. And then when that goes away, it just and, and if that's what you're completely consumed with, then you, you lose everything. Yeah, and that's kind of what happened. A good, good yeah. point. And it really, what happened? I just, it was my life. Basically, yeah. it had become my life. Even though I was a Christian, my I based everything of what I was on. I mean, I'm I'm happy that the good Lord gave me this to do and to play, you know. And, but when it becomes your life and everything depends on it, then it's not right. And yeah. that's what happened to me. And when the Lord took that away, there's there was a couple of really dark years of like you know just being depressed until I went, I think I went to church one Sunday with my aunt Ruby. Of course, my mother passed away in 1981, but she has a twin sister, hmm. identical twin, who's passed on now. But Aunt Ruby kept saying, "You want you go to church? Want you go to church?" And I was, so reluctantly one Sunday I said, "Okay, I'll come." And I don't know, man, during altar calls it. You know, I got to make something right here. And it did. It just, it was just amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. And after that, I was just like, okay, I, now I know what's missing, you know. What changed? It was a calmness about things, that things were going to be okay, whether, you know, whether your records got a record deal or not. Yeah. Whether money's coming in or not. Of course, I mean, it does help to have some money coming in. Yeah. I just knew things were going to be okay. You know, and that I needed to put my trust in the Lord compared to the business, you know, and that's that was the biggest change. You know, and I, I, I want to tell you also, a, a fellow, Phil Kagey, I had he'd been a hero of mine since 1972 when I first heard Glass Harp. And through a mutual friend of ours, uh, I finally got to meet him around 93. And I noticed when I went to his house and hung out with him, he was just so, 
you know, just so calm and just such a sweet guy. And, and he just made a really good impression on me. And I think he unknowingly planted some seeds that day that maybe, you know, and maybe the Lord was using that to kind of say, hey, take your eyes off of the situation with the band, with the record business. And, you know, trust in me, don't trust the business. Yeah. And Phil, Phil never really said it. He didn't preach at me or anything like that. We talked about Michael Bloomfield, we, our mutual love for Bloomfield. And, yeah. of course, I'm gawking over Glass Harp and things he's done. And uh, I took that with me. I'm going, man, he's, he's got it together, you know. And, like I say, 94, uh, February 94, I kind of got it right. Yeah. Not that I don't make some mistakes here and then. I still make my share of mistakes. But I know, but I get chastened pretty quick, as it says in Proverbs. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. I got some stripes on my rear end, y'all. <laughs> but they're not bad ones. Well, tell me about the the mighty Jeremiah's. That was with Jimmy Hall. Well, that that was another during ninety. That started around nineteen ninety two, when the headhunters were going through the turmoil. We weren't working as much. Uh, David Barrick had this cool little studio, and still does Glasgow. And initially, I just well, let's go over and my my stepson, John McGee who his band, Black Cat Bone, had recently busted up, too. Mm-hmm. Headhunters were still going. We were just putting it back together with Mark Orr and Anthony Kenny right. to go on. So we had time. I would just go in the studio. We would just start knocking around, cutting things. Putting, and we did a, a version of John the Revelator, an old Sun House song. And initially, Johnny sang it. Then we wrote a couple other things. Then after, when 94 rolled around and, and the Lord had changed me, I thought, you know, maybe maybe those songs right there are supposed to be part of a bigger, like some type of Christian project of some sort, you know. So I invited Jimmy Hall up to sing John the Revelator in a couple of songs. I'm going, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now this is making sense. It took a long time to do that. It took, it took a, I don't know how many years, but we finally got it done, and it came out around 2007, I think, on a small label. Um, uh, there was a couple labels interested in it, Christian labels. Actually, what I ended up doing, I had a buddy in Louisville, uh, Ear Ecstasy Records, had a little, little label out of his store, which was a cool label. I said, would you release our little project? He listened to us and said, yeah, I never thought about doing a Christian record, but yeah, let's do it. Get, get letters every so often, people that love that little project. And and it was always done to try to bring guys that were into ZZ Top and that type of thing, you know, to, you know, they would enjoy. They could be out drinking on a Saturday night and listen to the Mighty Jeremiah's and maybe they'd get something out of it, yeah. you know. So, but um, I, me and Jimmy still do some, we're going to try to do a Jeremiah's alive gig here coming up maybe in this winter sometime. Wow. Well, if we could catch him away from Jeff back, of course. Yeah, yeah. If we can borrow him from Jeff. Yeah, he's been with him, working with him quite a bit lately. So He has been. Yeah. Fun project. And actually, I got Phil, Phil Kagey played on uh, Amazing Grace on, on the project, which was a thrill to have Phil on. I had, uh, of course, Jimmy Hall. I've always been a fan of Jimmy. And, uh, 
Uh, who else on that? Uh, Bonnie Bramlin. Yeah. You know, it was a fun project. I still got a few copies left, just a few, you know. I ended up printing it up. I just gave them away pretty much. Yeah. Then you also had Rufus Huff. Rufus Huff. That was another thing. It's just, you know, to satisfy the Marshall Stack instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Went, went to the studio with Chris Hardesty and Jared England and Dean Smith, and we cut two tracks that ended up turning into an album. And there again, I, there's people every so often, you know, right, oh, we love Rufus Huff, you know, this and that. But uh, due to the health issues of one of the guys in the band, we just had to take a break from it. You yeah. Know? Then the Kentucky Headhunters continue. We never know. stopped. Yeah. I mean, people thought we broke up. Well, the original bunch broke up. Right. You know, early on in 92. But we put it back together with Mark Orr, and we've, we've, we still work. Yeah. By the grace of God, we still work, man. Still, we've got a live album dropping on Alligator Records. Who turned us down? They turned picking on Nashville down, by the way, which I can understand. <laughs> that. I'm glad they did. Yeah. Really, honestly, I'm glad yeah. they did turn it down. Yeah, it's much better. We than got we got the rejection Mercury. letter hanging at the Brax house <laughs> yes. from Bruce Siglar, and he laughs about it now. But we have done a you know we did an album with Johnny Johnson. Yeah, in blues, we actually yeah. did two albums with him. But uh, we recorded in England two years ago. We were playing Ramblin' Man. Matter of fact, JD was playing Ramblin' Man. That's the last time I've seen JD. Simo, yeah. hello JD, if you're watching. Yeah. Uh, he was playing one stage. We were playing another stage, and uh, we recorded live that day. And actually, uh, Alligator is going to release that in January as a live album. Nice, you know. So live from Rambling Man, you know, live on Alligator Man. Records. Yeah, Bruce Sigler, we got him back. <laughs> Man, yeah. and then. Lately, you've been doing a little bit of uh, Greg Martin band. Yeah, I guess they figure they, they. I didn't want to use my name, but they figure I won't quit. <laughs> I guess that's why they done it. Yeah, it's uh, Thane Sharon on vocals, who Ed King really loved his vocals a lot. He's a good Southern growler, you know. Yeah. Uh, Dean Smith from Rufus up on bass, and Steve Holmes on drums. Steve played with a group called Buster Brown. People in this area and Louisville would know Buster Brown. They were, they were the band that was a big influence on the Itchy Brother. They were like a three-piece band with a singer out front. You know, yeah. they were just a great band. Uh, so we're doing the Greg Martin group. You know, we're playing a few dates. We're going to the studio every now and then. No big aspirations, but we're just doing having fun. That's yeah. the deal. Working. It's a good excuse to play long solos and run people out of the room. That's right. <laughs> Turn it up. Overplay. What's your style? Overplay.
Well, Greg, let's talk gear. Yeah. <laughs> we love gear. We sure do, man. It, it, it drives us, <laughs> don't it? <laughs> it does <laughs> too much at times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. always thinking I mean, a few extra bucks, you know, I could get another guitar or amp or whatever, you know. But yeah. <laughs> So you've been holding this fabulous guitar the whole time. Is Hank the Plank. This is Hank the Plank. Yeah. Joe Bonamassa named it Hank the Plank many years ago. Oh, okay. So, so it wasn't it wasn't called Hank, you know, earlier before that. No, no. He knew I got it from Hank Junior. and and he he called. He just started calling every time I would show up. He would have us come out and jam. You know, JD's done it, and I've showed up and jam with him a couple of times. And he'd say, "Yeah, be sure to bring Hank the Plank." Yeah, you know, <laughs> and that become Hank the Plank. You know. Uh, it's a 58 Les Paul. Yeah. It's it's just a dirty lemon. If you take this off, there's red underneath. Okay. Red underneath here. It's all original except this right here. It got changed. The old one's at home. Uh, it The old one didn't have a, 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 a wire over it. Yeah. And I was playing in Lexington one night with it. And it was some crazy guy in front of the stage that night. Satan. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know what he, he Satan rocks or something like that. Okay, and I broke a string about that same time and the thing fell out. Yeah, but he was kind enough to give me my the saddlebag. He gave you the saddlebag. Yeah, and, and and then I changed strings. And I went home and I found this sixties. Yeah. I don't know why I brought that up, but I, I never want to forget that crazy guy. <laughs> Satan rocks. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Give me my saddle. <laughs> so anyway. Tell us the, you know, the, uh, the, the Hank story. The Hank story. Well, in 1988, Doug and I were playing with Ronnie McDowell. We were playing in Jackson, Mississippi. We were playing outside fairgrounds on, on a pretty big stage, but it wasn't wasn't the big Coliseum. But in the big Coliseum, Hank Jr. was playing. Yeah. Well, during our show with Ronnie McDowell, there was a gentleman who had long hair watching us, and he walked up to us and said, hey, man, you guys play well. I said, I'm a Hank Jr.'s guitar tech. It was Bud Phillips. Anybody know Bud Phillips? Um, I think he works at the... Opry House now maybe I'm not sure what, what but but he was he was a guitar tech for Hank Jr. at that time, and so would you he somehow he invited me and Doug over to the show, so we walked over and got on the side of the stage in his little station and yeah. watched Hank, and I don't somebody was playing Dino it could have been Dino Bradley I think Dino went out and played with him every now and then. It's either Dino Bradley, I don't think it was Animal Turner, but somebody had this guitar on stage. And I remember going, wow, that's a real 58. Back yeah. then, you just didn't see 58s that often. I right. think you, now, with the internet and, and these vintage stores like uh, Carter's and Gruen's, we see them. You know, we yeah. see, and we got friends that have them. And yeah. We get to see Gordon Kennedy's every now and then and stuff like that. Yeah. But I saw this guitar, and I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. That's a real 58 Les yeah. Paul, you know. And... That was pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Uh, maybe at the time we were working on a record deal, I, I don't know. But but lo and behold, when we released our album in 89, in early 90, we get offered a, a tour with Hank Jr., the Lone Wolf Tour. Uh, and it's a good match. 
yeah, yeah. It was really was, you know. Yeah. And there was a guitar again. It pops up. I think Animal was playing it. And <laughs> you know, Animal, I know one night I saw Animal throw this guitar to Bud Phillips through the air. Whoa. Bud caught it. I thought, oh, my God. Why? But... <laughs> It was a, it was eighty nine. Come on, man, or ninety ninety. You know yeah, things so. things were wild. You know. Yeah. So anyway, we were getting ready to go shoot a video for um, Oh Lonesome Me, which really didn't have a Les Paul on it. It was really a Strat and a wing bar. You know, but I asked Bud if he would ask Hank if I could borrow the guitar to use in the video. Hank was kind enough to let me use it. So we were going to split from the tour and be off from them for like. A few weeks, and they they let me take the guitar, and I did. Well, shot used it in the video, but then when I finally plugged in the Marshall, I go, "Oh God, <laughs> now I get it. Now I get why I can't get those tones. You know, uh, that that I hear. There's just a warmth about this thing. It, it it's like the high end is not quite as prevalent." It's there, but it's it's a very it's a very nice high end, and I went, oh God, this is this is it. This is pretty much it. This is what I was looking for, you know. And I kept that. Man, I had this guitar the whole summer because we were all from the, we were, we did the spring part of the tour, and we were going to do the fall part of the tour later, you know. Like and so they just let me keep it, take it out, and I took it out with the headhunters, used it. So we were playing Starwood, and. 90, end of 90, during his birthday, his birthday bash. And the headhunters and Hank Jr., maybe it's somebody else on the show too. And I took it back. I was what I knew I had to give it back to him. I took it on the bus, said, uh, man, I love this guitar. It's a great guitar, and I appreciate you letting me use it. He said, surely you can afford one of those now. Of course, they're always yeah. just out of reach. Yeah. I said, no, I, I can't. I can't. Somehow during the conversation, he said, just take it, keep it. And we end up doing a little swap, and I've had it ever since like the end of 90, you know. And last time I saw him, he said, I hear you're still playing that guitar. I said, yes, sir. I'm not getting rid of it. It's, that's my guitar, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's your guitar, but whatever, yeah. you know, through you. And yeah. it, it, it did belong to Ed King at one point. Yeah. Ed King originally got this guitar on a trade we think a gospel group had it because on the case is it's got a king's crown. Yeah. Kind of like that that you would see associated with Jesus, you know. And somebody had found and keeps saying, we think that came from a gospel group. And then Ed King traded. He already had red eye. Yeah. So he put this up for sale at Gruen's. And... I've got a picture of it in the case at Gruen's, and the other Les Paul in the case with it is the guitar that Paul McCartney bought. Oh, the left-handed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Ed sold it to Hank Jr., who was doing a uh, Dino Bradley was working there, and um, he um, sold Hank at Goldtop this and a Dobro, maybe a still body Dobro, and I think Hank liked the Goldtop better. He was more into the Goldtop. So he basically on the bus and I said, take it, keep it, you know, and that was, he just pretty much, I think I gave him a couple of things for it, but it was pretty much from him. That's the reason yeah. that's Hank the Plank. Yeah. 
after him. Yeah. You know? it, PAFs are, are the original PAFs. The only thing is tuners have been changed a couple of times. Uh, I've never refretted it. I've had Joe Glazer touch it up, and I changed I changed that back there so the. So yeah, so the saddles wouldn't pop out. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to deal with Satan boy hitting them back to me. <laughs> well, let us let us hear a little bit of it. You know, play, go through the different I don't, pickups. I don't and... know if it's in tune or not, y'all. Uh, I wonder if I should tune it first. Here, let's 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 tune. We'll start with the. Uh, you know, this is just the uh, the bottom pickup with everything turned. You know. The treble pickup. Middle position. Bass pickup, folks. You know, basically that—that's—that's that's the tones of it. what it does you know? and it does it well it does it well. it's always interesting to hear the chirp on top yeah yeah yep the you know especially on the bridge pickup you hear it yeah, yeah. The, you mean that yeah well the first guy I ever heard of course Gibbons is real famous for that Billy yeah. Gibbons a friend of do you know Gibbons at all yeah I mean I know he's playing I don't know you ever met him no oh okay well, yeah. you need to know him he's, he's a cool yeah. guy uh, he's really associated with that, but the first guy I heard do that was either Leslie West or Roy Gallagher, you know, and then, you know, I was like, hey, I mean, how are they getting that stuff, you know, yeah. which is just basically pinching, you know, yeah. pinch harmonics, you know. Yeah. you know, but yeah, he comes through real nice on this thing. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. And we're using our uh, 59 Harvard 
for you to plug into today. Man, that's a great amp. That that right there. And it, what, what's the volume on? The volume's yeah, it's just probably like on four or something, four or five. Something like that. Yeah, that thing sounds great. Yeah, if you crank it up about seven, you're probably going to get in the mountain territory right yeah. there. Tell us about this Strat. 57 Strat, beat up, and it wasn't quite as beat up, but there's a reason why it's beat up more. I'll tell you in a second. This guitar, um, I had went to see Anson Funderburg one night. Oh, man. Anson Funderburg and the Rockets. Yeah. Right. One of the best blues guitarists ever was. And saw them in Louisville one night, and I'm going, whoa. I had a 58, but I noticed he had a 57, 56 Strat, you know, the brown, yeah. you know, two-tone. And I walked into Guitar Emporium one day, and on the floor of this in the, the tweed case open, and I'm going, Jimmy, where'd you get this? He said, oh, oh, great, we just traded it. We just traded it. We just got it. And I said, can I trade my 58, my which was cleaner? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, I picked it up and went, oh, yeah. yeah. So we just, I just traded it even. I traded the 58 for this. I got it from Jimmy Brown. And this has been on uh, Rayvon, the Johnny Johnson album, you know, different things. I've used it yeah. a lot. Ah, uh, okay. Somewhere around 2000, 2001, I come in off the road. We actually had a local gig we ended up with a local gig for a corporation in, in glasgow on a saturday or, or i think but we'd been on the road for like two or three days before that and i was just tired but i had i was working on my, the mighty jeremiah project mm -hmm. i was actually working on a song called wicked ways in the studio at barrack studio with this guitar we had a great this guitar we had a great session you know plugged it right into the marshall it just i was what a tone. It just, it, was, it, was just, it was just worked. So anyway, after the session, I loaded up a Les Paul Jr. and this guitar in my van, and I went home. And, of course, I get out of my van. I didn't lock the doors. I went and sat on the couch to watch TV. And next thing I know, I wake up the next morning. It's daylight, and I go, gosh, I was just wore out. I just didn't yeah. I said, I better go get my guitars. Well, I go out. First thing I do, I go out, and there's a little alligator case that the junior's in. I noticed it was unlatched, but it was closed. I'm going, now, why would I do that? And then I noticed, okay, where's my Strat? <laughs> Which was in this tweed gig bag. It looked like golf clubs or a gun mm -hmm. case. It was gone, along yeah. with a computer. Terrible. It was like an early Apple computer, which was not... It was pretty much antiquated at the time. But I went, okay, where's my guitars at? I'll leave them at the studio. I started backtracking. They're not at the studio. Well, it came to me that somebody had got my guitar. Yeah. You know, somebody had got this and the computer. So immediately, you know, I started calling music stores in Nashville, called Gruens, called Guitar Emporium called guitar stores in Bowling Green, Elizabethtown, different places, and I made some posters. And about a week, it was gone. I went to the insurance office. Of course, they weren't going to give me anything much at all. Yeah. And I said, no, just just wait. And at the time, I used to talk to Jeannie C. Riley a lot. Jeannie C. Riley, country singer, Harvey yeah. Valley PTA. Yeah. 
she called me one day. She knew the story about what was going on. She said, Greg, the Lord gave me a verse. And I can't tell you exactly where it's from. It's be merciful to the poor. For It's, it's out of the Old Testament. I, I have to go back, maybe Jeremiah. And I went, okay, I don't know what this means. But about a week later, uh, I get a call on my studio phone. Hey, Greg, this is so-and-so. Um, I saw your poster at Junior Foods in, on Happy Valley Road, and I find know where your guitar is. I'm going, whoa, this is interesting. So I keep calling this number. No one ever answers. Until one night, the phone rings again, and, and uh, I pick it up, and it's him. And I said, well, I've been trying to call you. He said, well, I was calling you from a phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> this is back when it was phone booth, so yeah. so it yeah. was, it, that's the reason no one ever answered. Yeah, and uh, he said, "Well, he told me the story about this family out next to this creek, out in the county, were fishing one day, and and one of them saw the case out there. It was on a sandbar, just a little water. Yeah, it wasn't submerged, but just enough. It got damp. Yeah, and they pulled it in, took it home, and." Dried, took it out of the case and let it dry yeah. out. And he saw the poster. And uh, and uh, me and my cousin, Anthony Kenny, he put a gun under the seat. He didn't know. He said, I don't trust any of this. What's going on? <laughs> but it, it all turned out fine. So we picked up the gentleman at a hotel. He lived in a hotel in Glasgow. He's since passed away. But... And we we went out we went out the middle of nowhere and it was just an old farmhouse and looked like it was about ready to fall in, and there was the guitar on the porch, and I said, they just said they were down the creek right a yeah. few feet away from the house, and they pulled it in, and I just pulled out three hundred dollars and said, thank you, I just thank you for finding my guitar, and I went, I'll oh, be merciful to the poor. I thought it's yeah. all making sense, you know. So I took it home. Uh, this, the vibrato bar was broke off into it. it okay. Where it hit. Yeah. It's been discolored a little bit. But when I took it home, my wife looks at, well, it don't look much different than when you, yeah. <laughs> it was always beat up, but I could yeah. see this. Yeah. And of course the back of it is flaked off a little more. Yeah. You know, and uh, but nothing, it didn't ruin it, but I got mm. it back, you know. Uh, the, the old house, this family lived in, has been torn down. But it was so crazy. As soon as the police, I had reported it to the police. As soon as the police got wind that they had found it, they started wanting to go out and interrogate the family. I said, man, just leave it alone. Yeah. Just let it go. Yeah. I don't think they had a thing to do with it. Yeah. I really don't. I, my gut feeling is they didn't have a thing to do with it. You know, and uh, I got my guitar back, but they were ready to go. <laughs> they were ready to jump. Jump into action, man. You know. Yeah. But I'm 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 really happy to have it back because this, me and JD have talked about this. This is my 18. This one yeah. in in the 58 Les Paul. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's the ones that I could I can always depend on these. I mean, the the cool thing about I've got a 53 Telly, but I'm not really a Telly player myself. Yeah. I can. If I if I need to play a, a country, which I don't really play country like Steve and some of the guys, but you know, like a, you know. You get that you can get that nice little thing out yeah. there. Or 
whatever. You get the, you know, the Clapton. Or the, you know, the... Hendrixy Curtis Mayfield. Yes, kind of. absolutely. Yeah. It's it's there. You know, if you need the yeah. country, you know. It's there. It's I mean, got some nice snap on there. It's got a good snap. Yeah. yeah, and I've got like the fifty-three telly. I got's a nice one too, but I can get just about as much snap out of this. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I love his guitar. Tell us about this. Ventura that looks like a Dan Armstrong. Yeah, well, this uh, my buddy Doug Cook, who, if you've been around Nashville, Doug Cook, uh, I don't know what which he's had several bands around here, but he's been long. He's, he he was actually in wrestling for a moment too, but uh, he was also our one of our merch guys on the yeah. road. So he goes on the road with us sometime a few years ago, and we're playing over around Memphis. He, he goes to a pawn shop one day, and he found this guitar in the pawn shop. And, he's, and he talked the guy into letting him bring the guitar back to the bus, mm -hmm. to the gig at night. And, and the deal was, if I liked it, we'd slip the money under the door at the pawn shop, or we'd give it to the police and let them bring it back. Yeah. Well, as soon as I got it and played it, I went, I'll buy it. It was like two, three hundred bucks. Yeah. So... It's just a great guitar, and I've had Dan Armstrong's. Now, the only thing about this guitar, when it's in the case, the neck will shift on a little bit. Okay. But it's just got a, I mean, it's just got a, a good rock and roll, you know. That kind of thing. Uh That's it. You know, basically the uh, Stones meet um, Leslie West, maybe, or something. You know? Yeah, it's a cool deal. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching our interview with Greg Martin. Be sure and subscribe comment on our videos, and also watch out for our next episode with guitarist Kenny Greenberg. Thanks. This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.